Hello, and welcome to America Can We Talk. This is Debbie Georgiatis. Today, Monday, October 31st, is the final day in which we are sharing with you, our listeners, the speeches made by the extraordinary speakers who joined us at the third annual Women for Freedom Summit here in Dallas on October 15th. Today, you will hear from Raymond Ibrahim, a man who is able to read and write English, Hebrew, Arabic, and many other languages who will share his insights with you regarding the teachings, the actual teachings set out in Islamic documents. He's the author of Sword and Scimitar, a brilliant thinker and writer upon, about the impact of Islam in America. Second, you'll hear from Frank Gaffney, a frequent guest on America Can We Talk, the author of many books through the Center for Security Policy, the founder of Center for Security Policy, an extraordinary national security expert. And finally, you hear from Evan Sayet, a former Hollywood liberal, now an American writer and conservative, the author of Woke Supremacy. You will enjoy all three of these great speakers, Raymond Ibrahim, Frank Gaffney, and Evan Sayet, and I'll be back in studio live tomorrow, Tuesday, November 1st. On America Can We Talk, I talk about election integrity, border security, healthcare freedom, race relations, energy and tax policy, education policy, free speech and assembly, freedom of religion, and all other issues that touch on the God-given right of every American to life, liberty, and the pursuit of their version of happiness. Stay tuned. Hello, it's very good to be with you. Um, after all you've been listening to, and which I consider very important and urgent, of course, we really have to stop gears and turn to something else now. Um, what I'm going to be talking about may strike some of you as somewhat, you know, um, not urgent, and it might not actually be, but it's probably the longest and oldest threat facing Western civilization throughout history. And um, so, if at the very least you care about your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, the future of this nation and Western civilization, this is arguably probably the longest standing threat of all time. Um, I understand a lot of you are probably uh, not aware too much of the intricacies of Islam um, teaching, Islamic teaching and so forth. So what I'd like to do first is just sort of give you a doctrinal recap, a historical recap to validate the doctrine and then uh, fast forward to the modern era and show you how this is applicable today. And uh, one quick disclaimer, because I often get attacked for this. I'm not talking about your average Ahmad who works down at the you know, convenience store. He could be a great guy, and I'm not here to dispute that. I'm really talking about the doctrine, the teaching of Islam, and those who do seriously adhere to uh, these teachings. And that's uh, essentially the problem. And then later on, we can talk about this dynamic or really dichotomy about moderate and radical Muslims. Um, so quick doctrinal recap. Islam, according to the Quran and the teachings of the prophet Muhammad as um, collated in what's called the Hadith. Um, and, you know, this is all technical stuff. I'm gonna spare you. Long story short, Islam teaches hate for the infidel. Now, the infidel is uh, probably all of you if you're not Muslim. Um, and the Arabic word, of course, is kafir. And basically, it's just someone who has been invited to embrace Islam, but rejects it and wants to stay with their own religion or be an atheist, whatever the case may be. So that's an infidel. The Quran calls on Muslims to hate the infidel. 
with an abiding hatred, okay? And it also calls for Muslims to fight, and this is where the word jihad comes from. Muslims are um, commanded to, this is an obligation, this is, a, you know, when you hear the five pillars of Islam, for example, prayer, fasting, etc., um, it's, an, it's an, considered an informal sixth obligation, jihad. And um, again, I'll spare you the technicalities, uh, so the hatred goes so far as I was watching in Arabic, an actually well-known sheikh, cleric, talking about how um, you may know that Muslim men are uh, permitted to marry Jewish or Christian women, people of the book. Um, but they have to hate them in their hearts. And so this sheikh came up and he talked about, you can enjoy them physically, you can benefit off of their wealth, but you have to always have hatred for their heart, for, you, for them in, their, in your heart, because if you don't, you've defied Allah's law, again, as codified in the Quran. Now, this hatred manifests itself, of course, into what's called the jihad. And, you know, there's numerous verses. Uh, one that always comes to my mind is Quran 929, which um, says, and I'm quoting a pretty verbatim, fight the people of the book, again, Jews and Christians, until they um, are, are humbled. And, and it says the word humbled, feel themselves subdued and paid jizya. Which, and that really guides the whole of Islamic history, which was they waged war, and you had three choices. You can either become a Muslim, and then you're one of us, or if you want to resist, it's war. And then if, after we slaughter you, if there's any of you around, and you still want to maintain your religion, then you have to pay tribute, and you always have to be treated as a second-class citizen. And there's a whole you know, long list of how that's enforced. Okay, so... And again, you know, anyone who, if anyone doubts this, you can ask me later if you want actual references and sources from Islamic scriptures. Um, now, to me, it's, it's, I have often found Islamic history more fascinating and interesting, and that's um, of late what I write more about. And the reason for this is because a lot of people will argue, well, so what the Quran says, what you just said. You know, I mean, look at the Bible. It has a lot of violence in it. It's all about how you understand it and how you interpret it, and there's different schools of thoughts, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not necessarily the case that every single person's listening to these musty old books and, you know, having hatred in the heart and et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so let's look at what Muslims did historically. Um, and it's one long manifestation of this succinct summary of hate, warfare, subjugation that I told you. Um, you know, two year, uh, four years after Muhammad dies and the traditional date is the year 632, in 636, the jihad begins in earnest, and, it, and, and the attack on what's then really the Western world, or the Christian world, the West, the West, the word the West, it's interesting when we call it, when we say it, it's really the westernmost of what used to be a much larger Christian region, okay? And, and it became the West because that was the last bastion after centuries of jihad that, was, that remained. And so long story short, um, from the death of Muhammad until the year 732, one century exactly, um, you've got three quarters of what was not just the originally part of the Christian world, it was the older, richer, um, more sophisticated, if you like, part of the Christian world, which, believe it or not, was North Africa and the Middle East, nations like Syria, Egypt, Tunisia, Morocco, I'm giving them their modern names, Anatolia or Asia Minor, now Turkey. All of that was, you know, the Roman Empire actually moved to Constantinople, which was the east, because again, that's the... So all of that was actually conquered, annexed violently, and Islamized over the centuries. And uh, I gave you the year 732 as a symbolic reference after a century of this, because that's the Battle of Tours. Um, and without that battle, where the Franks actually, uh, Tours in France, 
where they actually beat a large, massive, something like 80,000 Muslim invaders who had come through and were conquering and destroying and plundering. Um, it, arguably, Europe could have been Islamic um, and, and all of history could have been different, okay? And of course, in Europe, you know, Spain was conquered, Islamized um, for centuries. It took the Reconquista or the Reconquest where a, a small remnant of Christians were holed up in the north after the Islamic invasion it took them centuries to actually move down south and very brutal and graphic wars. Um, I have all, if anyone's interested in all of these, I have two books on this topic for the record, Sword and Scimitar, 14 Centuries of War Between Islam and West and Defenders of the West, the Christian heroes who stood against Islam. And uh, you know, these are, <laughs> these are things that you won't come across in your standard books about Islam, and we'll get into why that is. Uh, so anyway, this jihad goes on and on, and then in the Balkans you had, you know, in six, as late as 1683, three, two or 300,000 jihadist Turks coming in and surrounding Vienna, almost conquered it. Um, the United States of America, once it became a country, its very first war was with Muslims. The Barbary Wars, uh, which start in the late 1700s and 1800, and again in 1815. And what's interesting about all this is you may say, okay, big deal, this is just war. People warred, especially in those days, all the time. Christians fought Christians, Muslims fought Muslims. What's your point? The point is, if you, when you look at all of these battles and all of these wars and conquests, Muslims justified it as a jihad and as an imperative on part of their duty, as I was pointing out. Now, that's important to keep in mind because that means they were ideologically driven. They were and they continue to be, and we'll get into that. So, for example, uh, you know, modern-day history books will talk about, you know, the Tatar conquest or, or the, um, the Golden Horde, you know, the Russian yoke, or they'll talk about the Moors and Berbers in Spain, or they'll talk about the Seljuk, Ottoman Turks, or the Arabs and the Persians. And yet all of these disparate groups, when you dig into the texts, as I did, all of them saw it in that concept that you're our enemy for the simple reason that you're a Christian or essentially non-Muslim. Others also suffered, uh, Jews and Hindus and Buddhists and so forth. So I find it interesting um, that it's actually emphasized in their sources, whereas again, here it's presented as, oh, it's just war, big deal, it happens all the time. So the long story short is historically, remember ISIS, the Islamic State in Syria and Iraq? Um, we were told, you know, th these guys have nothing to do with Islam. They don't represent Islam at all. They've hijacked it. Muslims hate them, et cetera, et cetera. Historically, what the great sultanates and caliphates and, you know, the actual the highest authorities of the Islamic world and rulers, th they were like ISIS on steroids, okay? Think of it on an exponential level. And that went on for, you know, well over a millennia. And so as I was telling you, Europe, actually, the West, it, it was the West because that was the Western portion um, that never got conquered or, or did and eventually ejected Islam out. A lot of historians have pointed out that Islam, one, I'm, I'm, I'm quoting a historian who actually said, um, a European historian, that Islam was a midwife to Europe, but a violent one. So really, so much of what Europe became and was, was because of Islam. Christopher Columbus, we just had, um, you know, Columbus Day or Native Indigenous Day or whatever it's called. Uh, <laughs> And um, not many people know that his, his primary motive was actually, it was part of the war against Islam and trying to recapture and liberate Jerusalem as part of the Crusades. That's why he was headed west. And that's why, you know, the Queen Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain 
funded his voyage because they were avowed crusaders and, they were, and, and the Eastern Mediterranean was just nonstop terrorism. If you were a European and you were caught by a Turk, Ottomans or Mamluks in Egypt, you were dead or immediately enslaved. So that's actually what prompted his voyage. So my point is, is you know, Islam has been in the background and it actually created you know, it, so much uh, developments in history, including the incidental founding of the New World. Was, it was part of a long war with Islam. All right, so that's a quick uh, summary history. Now let's move to the modern era. So what's going on with the Islamic world? Where are Muslims today, et cetera, et cetera? To me, I always find it, you know, if you want to know how Muslims or Islam operates, you've got to go where Islam or Muslims are in power and authority, which means the Muslim world. If you go to the Muslim world, so much of what I said is still enshrined. And probably the best way, or as I call it, you know, the best litmus test to seeing how Muslims feel about non-Muslims is to look at the plight of Christians in the Islamic world, which is another, um, you know, field of study for me, and that which I've written about a lot, including in one book. And if you go there, so remember, much of the Islamic world today, especially the heart of it, you know, Egypt and the, the Middle East especially, was, you know, the bastion of Christianity. So you still have indigenous Christians there in Egypt and Syria, um, and all throughout and elsewhere. And if you see the way they're treated, it's just out and out, out and out persecution. And for example, in 2011, because no one was really talking about this, I began publishing a report for the Gatestone Institute every month where I collate and summarize instances of persecution that occur throughout the Muslim world against Christians. And when I came up with this idea, I was concerned that, you know, how am I gonna do this every month? What if there's nothing? to report. Well, sadly, that's never been the case, and it's been 11 years, okay? So 12 times 11, uh, you know, pick, do the math of how many months, and each one of these reports um, document anywhere from one to two dozen anecdotes of Muslims from slaughtering Christians to burning and bombing churches to just, you know, entrenched discrimination to the abduction of women and forcibly Islamizing them, um, all sorts of things. And again, it's the same sorts of things that happened historically. So, it, it, you know, the continuum is very well evident. Um, so, you know, this gives you an idea of now any of these things that I write about, most of them I find from alternate media sources or foreign language sources, um, and then I bring them in. If, 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 if these little stories that I collate was a Christian or a non-Muslim in America and doing this to a Muslim, it would be headlines everywhere, okay? But think about it, one to two every month, and you don't hear, it's a blip right here, nothing. Okay, so, um, you know, keep that in mind. Um, now, where else is Islam strong? Well, Europe. Uh, if you take a look at what's happening in Europe, and it, Islam's got a massive population, especially in nations like the United Kingdom, and Sweden, and Germany, and France, you're going to see the same sorts of things that happen in the Islamic world. You know, I, I don't know how many Europeans have been beheaded. I'm remembering, um, you know, 80-year-old something Catholic priests in France were just Muslims went in and slit his throat uh, during mass. But that is certainly not an isolated incident. Again, that happens a lot, especially in the Islamic world, and so you won't hear about it um, against Christians. But all sorts of other things, you know, uh, in the UK you had this sex grooming of little young girls. Uh, I think Rotherham it is, but other places as well. Sweden has become the rape capital of Europe. Um, <laughs> And it's something like, it's jumped like, I don't know, last I saw like 2,000% rapes. And it's almost overwhelming all of it from migrants who come from the Muslim world. 
And there's a reason for that, because in Islam, the infidel woman is actually, uh, they're, they're in the Quran, they're referred to as, you know, the, what your right hand possesses. And uh, not only can a Muslim man have four wives, but he can have as many <laughs> women as his right hand possesses, which means, you know, to use it, to euphemize a concubine. So that mentality is actually active and working. And, and, and all, the, all the while, it's being hidden and suppressed by the powers that be. In France, get this, two churches every single day are attacked, desecrated, sometimes with fecal matter smeared on them or burned. Remember the burning of Notre Dame? I, for one, don't think it was an accident. Okay. Um, in, you know, in, in Germany, ever since, which have taken over like 1.5 million Muslim migrants, continuously, you, th you see, I, I remember during one Christmas a couple years ago, hundreds of crosses were destroyed and Jesus and Mary statues beheaded, so forth. And you know, I wonder who, that, who did that, right? So, it give, so the animus is there. Now, if you come, now let's fast forward to here, to the United States. Currently, Islam actually is a very small, small population, depending on who you ask. It's under 5%. And a lot of them are African-American converts, usually from jail, who may or may not have a um, proper understanding of the religion. Um, but they're mobilized and used and, you know, for the same sorts of reasons. Um, now, what's happening in America is Muhammad, the Quran, was revealed over two uh, periods. And they're known as the Meccan period and the Medinan period regarding the two cities. When he was in Mecca, um, he was outnumbered. He didn't have many followers. And he was being persecuted by the pagans, the powers that be. And so the verses that were revealed to him, like supposedly came from Allah and it became part of the Quran, are the ones that are seem seemingly tolerant. You know, they say you have your religion, I have my religion. Um, you know, uh, all, all sorts of things that you'll hear a lot of Muslims quote. When he went to Medina and became a power, a force, and he had a lot of men under his arm, and he began the jihad in earnest, that's when you got all the violent verses, the ones that I told you about hating the non-Muslim, waging war. You know, Quran 9.5 says, you know, slay the infidel wherever you find him, lay in ambush, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that came out in Medina. So there's a paradigm for Muslims to follow, and according to a lot of um, Islamic clerics, which is basically, if you're, in, if you're outnumbered, like Muhammad was, then you follow the, Me or you at least preach the Meccan verses, which are the ones about, about tolerance, you know, no violence. And when you become strong enough or you're in the situation where you can employ the Medinan versus the violent ones, then you should do that as well. And I've actually talked with Muslims who confirm that, yeah, that's, I, I, I worked with a Muslim man, a Somali, when I used to work at the Library of Congress, and we had this argument. And I, you know, I said, why, why, why do you keep referring to, you know, you're, you're always talking about these moderate verses, don't you acknowledge them? And he goes, well, I'm in Mecca right now, <laughs> in, in reference to DC or in America in general. Um, so, and, and there's a lot of anecdotes, uh, his, you know, when ISIS came, there were all these um, Christians who were persecuted in Iraq and Syria who lived side by side with Muslims in villages and helped them and took them in. And then when ISIS, once ISIS came, the villagers turned them in and they killed them and, and so forth. Really bad stuff. Okay, now, um, one of the more pressing issues also, which I think um, dovetails very well with one of the other speakers coming up, is, the ter is terrorism coming through the border, the Mexican border, the porous border. Um, first, what you need to know is that's not theoretical, it's happening. There, there have been many Muslims who've been caught crossing the border who were before that on the FBI terrorism watch list. I remember one, I think Ahmad Muhammad Ahmad, um, who came from Yemen 
and he was captured. And many more, I remember reading about 20 or 42 that were caught. And these aren't just Muslim migrants who could be like anyone else looking for economic opportunities. These are known or implicated with terrorism, okay? And they're coming in by the droves because for each one or two that are caught, I wonder how many actually get in. So that's certainly something to keep in mind. But the current, um, because of the small population of Islam in America, um, it's currently in its, what I what would call the nonviolent mode. It's, it's about clandestine activities and infiltration and sabotage. And, um, and this really all coalesces in one organization known as the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, which was founded in Egypt in, I believe, 1928. And out of the Muslim Brotherhood, so many offshoots have come out uh, that are in that are here in the United States, and you know they're they're treated well. They're they're well-known organizations. They're very influential and impactful. Um, and uh, but I'll give you a quote. So sometime in I think 2011 or 10 or maybe even earlier. I'm sorry, I, I forget the date. Someone will know. But um, an internal document was actually seized by the FBI from the Muslim Brotherhood. And here's a quote, okay, from them. This is their purpose for being in the United States. They call it, quote, a civilizational jihad. That's what they're doing. And then it, they say the brotherhood, which is themselves, and really all Muslims by extension who share in with their worldview, must understand that our work here in America is a kind of grand jihad in eliminating and destroying Western civilization from within and sabotaging its miserable house. Okay? So it sounds uh, pretty familiar compared to what I was telling you about what happened for centuries. It's the same idea. Um, and to be sure, you have Muslims, and not a few of them with this way of thinking that are actually entrenched in high positions of the government. Just last week, I think Biden appointed, made three appointees to some sort of homeland security panel, and all of them are Muslims with sort of jihadist ties, and you know, definitely a bespotted record, okay? And, and this is the very, very common thing. You know, uh, Hillary Clinton had Huma Abedin, you know, from Saudi Arabia, um, and we can go on and on about how, how many of these types are actually entering into the, um, the government. Um, but the ultimate way, and I think this will strike you as very familiar with so many of the things that we're talking about, whether it's COVID or anything else, that um, this issue, this problem is being suppressed is uh, through the usual wokest paradigms of lies. And in this case, the key word, the catch-all phrase is Islamophobia. If you say anything, everything I've said from top to bottom or now, this is Islamophobic, okay? And the word, of course, Islamophobia, you know, it, it means fear in Greek, but um, you know, the connotation today when you say phobia means it's an irrational fear. <laughs> I don't think this is an irrational fear in the context of the history that I just um, very briefly mentioned. I mean, it gets, it's much more graphic, okay? I mean, like I said, in, in Sword and Scimitar, I go through every century and it's almost 400 pages of the sorts of things that happened. I mean, how many, you, you hear of all the sins of Europe and the white man regarding slavery. Did you know that 10 to 15 million Europeans were enslaved by Muslims? Okay, and usually in much more horrific circumstances. Eh, nobody really seems to know that, and there's reason. So Islamophobia is designed to shut down all discussion, okay? And anything, just, and, and like I say, you can see the parallels with other topics that we're discussing, but just COVID, right? The massive suppression, you know, Google, or Twitter, and all these social medias, they do the same thing when it comes to Islam, okay? They completely suppress it and so forth. Um, and um, what's ironic, <laughs> just two weeks ago, believe this or not, 
and it's very telling about Islamophobia. Um, a think tank, in, a Muslim-run think tank in Dearborn, which is like little Mecca of America, actually ran a survey, and they always do, about Islamophobia, a poll to find out who's more Islamophobic than who. And believe it or not, the most Islamophobic segment of American society were Muslims, okay? And I have, in particular, three, there were um, several measurements that, you know, they asked various people and they took their demographics, okay, you know, Protestants, Evangelicals, Catholics, Jews, uh, so forth, Muslims. And the, th the three um, categories that I remember are, are Muslims um, more uncivilized than other people? Are Muslims more violent than other people? And are Muslims hostile and do they hate America? And mu more Muslims than anyone else said yes to all those questions. I think that's pretty telling, okay? So now we're left with the specter of not shutting down everyone like me because we're Islamophobes, but I guess we have to shut down Muslims because they're Islamophobes. I and mean, this is how ridiculous this is becoming, okay? Um, I'll leave you with a final kind of story to show you how influential these groups can be. So um, in 2018, I was invited by the U.S. Army War College in Pennsylvania to give a talk about my, my book, Sword and Scimitar, and the subtitle will tell you why. It's called 14 Centuries of War Between Islam and the West, so it makes sense. Army War College wants to hear about this. So they invited me and everything went well, and then two or three days before, CARE, which is an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood, who exists, again, to shut down all debate and call everyone Islamophobe, went hysterical, accused the War College for being Islamophobes and racists for inviting me over, uh, and, and all kinds of insane stuff. It culminated with actually them calling me Mr. Ibrahim, a white supremacist, you know, in their hysteria, <laughs> um, because, you know, those are the words that, you know, get points. And lo and behold, the Army War College buckled and they actually canceled my talk in 2018. Um, this sort of thing happens a lot, but luckily, I guess, um, a lot of media picked it up and a lot of people wrote War College really bad letters, you know, offensive. So long story short, they actually did invite me in um, and I spoke uh, in February 2020 and they, were, they, they videotaped it and it was supposed to be you know, put up, and I knew they didn't want to do it because they didn't want any more controversy. It was bad enough, you know, just keep it in our area and not publicize it. And then COVID hit, and I was, and so since then, February 2020 until now, they haven't put it up because of COVID. <laughs> okay. uh, all right, so um, this, this just, but anyway, this gives you an idea of how impactful these groups like CARE and the Muslim Brotherhood are in shutting down because without proper knowledge, obviously, same thing like we're talking about COVID, you know, if you don't know the truth, you're just gonna go along and be, um, you know, uh, hand-fed the false narrative um, about what's going on. So that's how in impactful they are and that's what obviously we need to keep an eye on and it's because of, so again, how do I relate this to the general theme? It's like I said, it's part of this insane wokeness, you know, where right is wrong, wrong is right, you know, it's just, it's, it's hard to really like make sense of you know, how, how absurd it's gotten, okay? Um, and, I'll, and I'll just leave you one example again of how just, just the discrimination is, is entrenched in the Western elements. So you remember um, in Australia, some man, or in New Zealand, sorry, an Australian man went into a mosque and shot up like 50, 51 I think was the number of Muslims, okay? Horrific thing, and the whole world, of course, condemned it rightfully so, and it stood up and hasn't sat down since. Okay, and so on the anniversary of that um, shooting, just this last, I think it was March 15, um, the UN inaugurated a Combat Islamophobia Day because, and they cited that. Okay, now 
I did an, I wrote an article where I compared something and I found that I listed something like 20 Muslim attacks on churches, okay, that ended up killing a total of well over a thousand people. Churches being bombed and burned and shot up, okay. Not one of those was ever mentioned. There's, and there's no, why don't we have a, you know, combat Islam, uh, Christian phobia day, right? It was, they're not even acknowledged. All of those are just, you know, they're not, it's not because of, uh, you know, hateful Westerner killing Muslims. It's not Muslims killing Christians. It's just, um, you know, climate change, believe it or not. <laughs> they cite climate change now as one of the reasons Christians and others are being persecuted in the Islamic world. Yeah, because it fits the narrative. And the final, the final piece of, um, you know, information I'll close with, and I think it's good news, is that, you know, today Muslims are not invading the West with swords and spears the way they did in former times in Europe where Europeans fought tooth and nail to keep them out. They're actually being brought in and welcomed in. So what that means is their entire power and influence is predicated once again on this entity that we call the left, okay? They're another um, symptom, a byproduct of it, which means um, it's part of the same war that we're dealing with, whether it's COVID or anything else we're talking about. It's these principles and, and uh, policies that are just, you know, counterintuitive, antithetical to reality, and it's, it's designed to kill, basically, Americans or, or ruin their lives. So I think it's good to keep that in mind because it makes things a little more um, focused and uh, it's not, Muslims are weak right now, Islam is weak, okay? It's, it's a problem in Europe because Europeans have made it a problem for themselves. And it could be a problem in the United States for the very same reason. So the good news is ultimately it's in our hand and it's connected to the larger war that we're all dealing with. Thank you. Well, I don't know about you, but this is my idea of a good time. And that's not because it's so mordantly depressing and you want to slit your wrists, but because uh, Debbie's given me and, and really all of us an excuse to hang together with some fabulous people. Uh, privileged to call many of them dear friends. Here, here. Um, some are just people that I've admired for a long time, but, uh, but quite a number of them are people that we actively work with. And so I'm gonna take the liberty of, of uh, being the cleanup batter, I guess, for this panel to sort of synthesize uh, what a number of them have said to you and put it into a context. And honestly, I've been doing sort of national security related stuff in and mostly out of government for the better part of 40 years now. And in the course of it, I've given a lot of speeches and I've never approached it in this way before, this topic of where we are from a national security perspective. I'm gonna to try to synthesize what we've been talking about and maybe add a few things that we haven't in the context of spiritual warfare because that is what is going on here, folks. And it's not just national security. I mean, really, everything that we've been hearing about, I mean, Simone Gold's testimony, so many of these people and, and, and the heart-wrenching stories they've told is evidence of evil. Evil that is now operating not just externally as it always has, I guess, 
but very much here at home as well. So I want to kind of connect some dots and invite you to think about it in a different way perhaps than you have and think about what we do about it perhaps in a different way as well. We've talked a lot about China and honestly I'm not sure we can talk enough about China given what we're contending with here. You talk about evil and again the caveat that's been offered up by others I'm not sure this is true of the vast majority of Chinese people. Even though they have been subjected for millennia to horrifically oppressive regimes of imperial or now communist style, or that for that matter they've been brutally indoctrinated by the communists for 70 years. But I am talking about the Chinese Communist Party when I'm talking about evil. And the Chinese Communist Party seeks not only to continue to treat its own people with unimaginable repression. What my friend Reggie Littlejohn got into, and she's taught me a lot about this, is this womb police stuff. I mean, this is just a symptom of an unbelievably intrusive, aggressive, and tyrannical system. But the kicker is, folks, what they're doing to their own people and they want to continue to do and they want to do more efficiently and they are with this social credit system and big data and quantum computing and artificial intelligence and hundreds of millions of surveillance cameras and all the rest that goes into something that Orwell on his most imaginative day could not probably have conjured up. But they want to do that to everybody else. And trust me, it's not likely to go better for us than it is for their own people. After all, we're not Han Chinese. And the irony of this is uh, part of the evil that is at work now in our country, thanks to the Chinese Communist Party, among others, is the idea that we are a systemically racist country. We have to be indoctrinated by critical race theory, as we've been talking about today, to learn that all of those of us who happen to be white are inherently oppressors, and those who are of some other color are inherently oppressed. And this is being promulgated in no small measure by the most systemically racist country in the world, in the history of the world, namely the Chinese Communist Party regime. Han supremacism is one way to describe it. Ask a Uyghur, ask a Tibetan, ask a Southern Mongolian. Or for that matter, ask lots of Han who happen to be Christians or they happen to be Falun Gong or something else. Not approved by the Chinese Communist Party. 
So I want to just say, if you properly understand the evil that is now operating under the banner of the CCP, and a friend of mine, David Goldman, has coined the phrase, if you're a Star Trek fan, it's the Borg. This all-seeing, all-knowing, comprehensive, relentless machine. Gordon Chang did a wonderful job talking about some of its attributes, as did Reggie. But the truth of the matter is, the Chinese Communist Party has been at war with our country for decades. In 1999, they actually let the cat out of the bag. Two senior colonels in the People's Liberation Army were permitted to publish what is the doctrine of the CCP towards the United States, has been, as I say, for decades. They called it unrestricted warfare. And that warfare has mostly taken the form of techniques other than kinetic to take us down. And again, I don't want to repeat what's been said, but if you think about it, when Gordon says don't buy Chinese if you can, that if you can reflects the fact that it's hard because part of the unrestricted warfare has been economic warfare about which I've learned much from my friend Kevin Freeman. They've taken down our industrial base. In some cases, they've literally moved it lock, stock, and factory to China and sold it back, sold the goods back to us. The supply chains as a result that we depend on for just about everything, including medicine, is now firmly in China. Part of the unrestricted warfare program. Elite capture, as Sam Faddis has just brilliantly described. And by the way, let me just say, Sam Faddis and one of our other valued colleagues, Trevor Loudon, have done an incredible public service. For those of you taking notes, write this down, at accountabilityinitiative.org, in which they've put together, I've lost track, Sam, I think it's, over two dozen dossiers on people in our government who now are compromised, to use his tradecraft term, controlled by the Chinese Communist Party, starting, of course, with the Commander-in-Chief. But it's just about everybody else whose portfolio, at senior levels at least, touches on China, hence the Dream Team. But you just have to read through this to believe it. And just a, a small point, Sam talked about one of my particular favorites, which is uh, Bill Burns, who currently is the director of his old outfit. What he neglected to mention is that Bill Burns was actually asked under oath in the course of his nomination hearing in the Senate Intelligence Committee. And I think he actually had probably talked with the senator beforehand about it. The senator was Marco Rubio who asked the question, what about the fact that the Carnegie Endowment 
has for years been running influence operations for the Chinese Communist Party. And Bill Burns, again, under oath, testified that he had been concerned about that himself. And when he took over the job, he came out of a very senior level foreign service position. When he took over the job, one of the first things he did was shut down those collaborative operations with the CCP. That, ladies and gentlemen, was perjury. It was a bald-faced lie. He had continued those operations for, I can't remember how many years he was there, but it was a number of them. Not only that, he put a CCP influence operator, very prominent fellow, a lot of money, on the board of directors of his organization and intensified collaboration with him. So, evil at work. And I'm gonna run out of time before I run out of bad news to give you, but I, I, do want to, <laughs> I do want to just hit a couple of other cases of evil that we haven't quite hit. What has been done to our energy, we heard a little bit about you know, energy and that fabulous fossil fuel thing, it was great. We're watching our country's most important sector destroyed. Now, we haven't felt the full effect of it just yet, but look at what is happening in Europe, which, as usual, is a little further down the tubes than we are. And I'll tell you a fascinating story. We've been doing a series of webinars. I'll tell you more about it in a minute. But um, one of them was about the border. And the brilliant fellow by the name of Michael Yan, I don't know if you know him or not, you should, uh, former very, very, as a very young man, became one of the youngest rangers in our country's history, has been a combat correspondent for decades since. And he was telling about travels in Europe where he was watching immigration problems and what they have brought about. Raymond Ibrahim talked a little bit about it. One of the things he said, which I didn't know, is that as a result of what has been done by these lunatic Greens and the people appeasing them, in the name of getting away from fossil fuels, is creating conditions under which now they are going to rely upon burning wood to try to survive the winter. And Michael said, you fly over Europe now and the forests of Europe are being destroyed for the wood. How green is that? But the point is, and, and Tucker Carlson's been doing a great job talking about this you know, real destruction of Western civilization that will flow inevitably from destroying the energy that makes the quality of life what it's been for us. This is a problem. A piece of this story about China that doesn't get nearly enough attention, I honestly, I didn't know much about it myself until we did a study of it about a year ago is the fact that they are rapidly colonizing the world. They have a program Xi Jinping calls the Belt and Road Initiative, 
And what the Belt and Road Initiative is, is essentially a build out of infrastructure, the likes of which we've not seen since, oh, I don't know, I guess the British East India Company. And it uses kind of the same sort of mercantilist arrangement. Coupled with payday loans, whereby the Chinese will offer people something in the way of uh, an offer you can't refuse to build out your ports or your airfields or your road networks or your rail networks with easy money. Knowing full well that the vast majority of these countries being developing countries won't be able to pay those loans. And then under the terms of the deals, the Chinese get to expropriate them. And what do they get? Well, they get all those infrastructure assets, of course, but they also get the territory, effectively, on which they have been built. And more to the point, folks, for our purposes, they get to project power from those places. So not only do they enslave the people, who, by the way, didn't get a piece of the action other than the the greedy leadership usually, all the construction is done by the Chinese, down to the whores that are imported for the purpose of supporting them. This is evil. And it has a really menacing overtone for us in the event that, as I fear, we will shortly be at war with China. Not, not the unrestricted, non-kinetic, not even, by the way, the biological warfare kind which we've written a book about, which happens to be back in that corner, if you want to get a copy. About half of the room has been a collaborator on this book, so maybe they'll sign it for you as well. But the point is that those were bad enough. The biological attack that was that COVID pandemic and the China model, Simone Gold knows all about this, the China model, the, the, the digital gulag with the vaccine passports, the lockdowns, the mask mandates, the vaccines that weren't adequately tested and turned out to be worse than the disease by a long shot. That's all the Chinese model. And they managed to insinuate it into our country by bringing us that biological warfare attack, which is what it was. It came out of the laboratory in Wuhan Institute part of the biological warfare program of the Chinese Communist Party. And however it got out, and there's some uncertainty still about that, what we know for sure is that they disseminated it worldwide, deliberately, purposefully, malevolently. It also turns out, we just learned this week, that they'd started buying up the personal protective equipment that they could get their hands on all over the world, and they stopped selling theirs in about August of 2019, which was about three or four months before they copped to actually having the disease. So I'm almost out of time, and I want to just leave you with a quick thought about what do we do about this evil. And I could, as Sam said, go on and on about it, but one of the things, taking basically some of the ideas that he and Gordon and others have put before you, uh, we are putting out today something that builds on this book, the title of which is The CCP is at War with America, builds on a half hour 
presentation, a video presentation. Again, if you're taking notes, write this down. You could get the book for free as a PDF. You can get what we call the brief for free at ccpatwar.com. And I think today we will have there as well something else, which we call the CCP Challenge. And it basically picks up where Gordon and, and uh, Sam left off. We need you in the course of the next three weeks to talk to somebody who wants your vote at the end of those three weeks. Because for at least the next three weeks, they really want you to think they care about what you think and want. And maybe they actually do at least for the next three weeks. So tell them you care about fighting this evil of the Chinese Communist Party. Tell them to take the brief themselves. Tell them to get smart on this and tell them that they have a responsibility as your representatives, if they do get elected, to protect our country against this evil, this unprecedented threat to us and to our posterity. And if you do that, even in just these next few days, I think we're gonna be much better positioned to deal with what the Chinese Communist Party has in mind for us if Xi Jinping gets coronated at his party congress getting underway tomorrow. And just a closing thought, and I know I'm out of time. Tonight, at 9 o'clock, just as Xi Jinping's party is getting underway in Beijing, we're going to have a little crashing the party program that a number of the people that you've heard from today are going to be speaking at to talk about the truth about what the Chinese Communist Party is up to. They're going to be talking about what a great outfit it is. We're going to be talking about what evil it represents and why we must not let it win. Thank you very much. Actually, the applause should have continued until I made it to the stage. You actually have, <laughs> you, 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 you have some responsibility here too, you know. Um, <laughs> so far today, up until right now, we've talked about all the bad guys. We've talked about the CCP, we've talked about the Russians, we've talked about the Islamicists, but we haven't talked about the good guys. And I'm talking about our friends, our neighbors, our colleagues, um, for many of us, our relatives who really aren't Marxists, who aren't Islamicists, and yet they side always with evil, failure, and wrong. And it was exactly 15 years ago that I went to the Heritage Foundation and I gave this lecture where this talk is now the single, not now, it's been the single most viewed lecture in Heritage Foundation's entire history. And it's because I answered a question that bothers us and nobody else has really seemed to answer it, which is why do so many good, smart, decent, loving, caring, generous people like our friends, our neighbors, our colleagues who vote Democrat, why do they side always with evil, failure, and wrong? And I answered that in a way that was so satisfying and so gratifying and so actually simple that, that 
it, it just became this phenomenon. In fact, I remember National Review Online put up a bulletin that said, this talk from Evan Sayet is cramming our inboxes. Please stop sending it. Right? And as I received emails about it, they, there was this phrase that people used, and it was an odd phrase, so it stuck out, and it was more than once, it was repeatedly. People would say to me, do you know what you have there? You've got the unified field theory of liberalism. Because once you understand what I said in that original talk, you have the answer to that question. And so when I turned it into the book, The Kindergarten of Eden, How the Modern Liberal Thinks, I wrote it as if it were a unified theory, a unified field theory of liberalism. So there are four laws and three corollaries, but for our purposes today, I'm only gonna give you the first two laws. That's all you're gonna need, and then we're gonna talk about the woke supremacy. I'm gonna give it to you how it's written in the book, and then I'll explain it. The first law of the unified field theory of liberalism is this, that the modern liberal, that's anyone born after World War II and getting worse with each successive generation, the modern liberal was raised to believe that indiscriminateness is a moral imperative because its opposite is discrimination. In the 1980s, by no coincidence, when the first babies born after World War II, who became the children of the 60s, when they became the powers that be in the universities, in, in uh, journalism, in entertainment, in the Democratic Party, in the 1980s, thinking was outlawed. All right, it was deemed to be a hate crime. Here's the thinking behind the outlawing of thinking. Anything that you believe, anything that I believe, anything that anybody believes is going to have been so tainted by your personal prejudices. Prejudices we all have. Prejudices we can't help but have simply by being human. Prejudices based on things like the color of your skin, the nation of your ancestry, your height, your weight, your sex, and so on. Anything that you believe is going to be so tainted by your personal prejudices that the only way not to be a bigot is to never think at all. Everything, every religion, every form of governance, every behavior, every body shape, every body size, every gen, everything must be deemed to be equally right, equally good, equally true, equally valid. But that only gets us halfway there. Because if they were just indiscriminate, sometimes they'd be right, sometimes they'd be wrong, most of the times they'd be somewhere in the middle. But the modern liberal is not only always wrong, he is always as wrong as wrong can be. He is always 180% degrees from right. I'll give you two examples, one domestic, one foreign. How do you look at what happened in Ferguson, Missouri with Michael Brown? and decide that Michael Brown was a gentle giant and the victim of an evil white racist cop when the facts were exactly the opposite. How do you look at the Middle East with this tiny, wonderful, liberal democracy, lowercase l, lowercase d of, of, of Israel, with everything you would think a liberal would love? I mean, gay pride parades, a woman prime minister back in the 1960s, surrounded by Islamic fascists who are homophobic, xenophobic, and I do believe just a little bit anti-Semitic. <laughs> and you decide that the problem in the Middle East is, is that tiny liberal democracy of Israel. Not only in the Middle East, 
but that's the only nation in the entire world that you are going to seek to strangle to death economically through boycotts, divestment, and, and what am I leaving out? Sanctions. How do they get it so wrong? And that's the second law of the unified field theory of liberalism. I'll give it to you as it's written in the book, and then I'll explain. Indiscriminateness of thought does not lead to indiscriminateness of beliefs. Indiscriminateness of thought leads invariably. It leads inevitably. There is no place else it can lead than to siding with evil over good, wrong over right, ugly over beautiful, profane over profound, failure over success. Why? Because if nothing is better than anything else, then success is unjust. Why should something, a person, a nation, a culture, a religion, uh, an athlete, why should somebody succeed if they're not better than anything else? On the flip side of that, failure, as proved by nothing other than the fact that it has failed, serves as proof positive that somehow the failure has been victimized. And then it's merely by extension. If success and failure are proof positive of injustice, then great success and great failures prove positive of great injustice. And long and sustained success and failure is proof positive of the greatest injustices of all. If nothing is better than anything else, you have to overvalue the lesser. You have to undervalue the better. And the greater it is, the more you must undervalue it. The worse it is, the more you must overvalue it. And so they get everything spun on its head. And the word discrimination is an interesting word. I do believe, and I'm not swearing to this, so maybe somebody knows better than I. I believe it may be the only word in the English language that first two definitions are diametrically opposed and mutually exclusive. The first definition of discrimination is to use your intellect and experience to be able to see fine differences between similar things like she's a discriminating shopper. But the other definition of discrimination is the rejection of intellect and experience and the inability to see differences even within large groups like racism, collectivism. So in order to make this perfect world, this world that doesn't have discrimination, because discrimination, the evils of discrimination, are the cause of every ill and evil the world has ever known, according to them. So if they can eliminate discrimination, they can make this the perfect world. But by eliminating discriminating thought, they've left only prejudice and bigotry. Because everything that they believe is already preordained. See, to decide that America isn't exceptional is not to have failed to have made a judgment. You've made a judgment. America is not exceptional. And that judgment is made ahead of time. Everything that the modern liberal believes has been prejudged and is immovable. Because in order to move them from their prejudiced position, they'd have to be willing to discriminate. They'd have to be willing to think about the facts. And they're not because thinking is the act of bigotry itself. Right, so one of the things that they have completely wrong is that they say we are a supremacist movement. Nothing could be further from the truth. We are the very opposite of a supremacist movement. We are a nationalist movement. What a nationalist movement does and says is that all rights, privileges, opportunities, and protections of society belong to anyone who is a citizen of that nation 
without regard to skin color, sex, income, or any other variable. Your rights are protected. If you are a member of this nation as a citizen, you have full rights. In a supremacist movement, those rights are reserved only for people who possess a particular trait. Now, because of the history of both the Nazi party, the, the, the singular heinousness of, of, the, of the Nazis, and to be frank, the history of the Democratic Party in the United States, to whom race has always been critical to the theory behind their policies, always. Race was critical to the theory behind the Democratic Party policy of slavery. Race was critical to the Democratic Party policy of Indian removal. Race was critical to the theory behind the Democratic Party policy of Jim Crow, Japanese internment. Critical race theory isn't new to the Democratic Party, it's just they're always changing which race they are exploiting. So because of the history of the Democratic Party in America, and because of the singular heinousness of the Nazi party, of the Nazi movement, when we think of supremacist movements, we tend to think in terms of race. But the reality is that history is chock full of supremacist movements, almost none of them, where race was the determinant of what I call the supreme trait. And in fact, right now we have three major supremacist movements on the planet today. None of them use race as the determinant of the supreme trait. For example, there is the communist Marxist supremacist movement where all rights, privileges, protections, and opportunities are reserved only for those who are in a particular class. It's a supremacist based on class. We have the Islamicist supremacist movement where all rights, privileges, opportunities, and protections are reserved only for those who, who, who have the right creed. So the fact that wokeism is not necessarily based on, on, on race, but on those who hold the creed of wokeism, indiscriminateness, indiscriminateness. So do the woke seek to reserve all rights, like the right to free speech, only for people who possess the supreme trait of wokeness? Okay, so let's check off that box. Do they believe that all protections like due, we know this in this room, like due process should belong only to those who possess the supreme trait of wokeness? So we can check off that box. Do they believe all opportunities, like the opportunity to have a job or to run your business the way you see fit, should only belong to those who possess the supreme trait of wokeness? Yes, you can go across the, 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 across the line and, and, and down the row. The Nazis believed only those who possess the supreme trait of Arianism should have the rights, privileges, protections. All others are not only to be fully disempowered, they are to be forever silenced, and in fact, they are to be erased from the memory as if they never existed. That's what they seek to do with tearing down the statues and rewriting the history. And it's Every single step of the way, you can check every box of, of what makes something a supremacist movement, and conversely, it is untrue, it is the opposite of true with us. In fact, nationalism is the antidote 
Nationalism is the antidote to supremacist movements, and we can see this, we can see this twice in the 20th century alone. The only reason that Gandhi was able to peacefully uh, get, get freedom, liberty, from, from the Brits was because he appealed to their nationalism. This is our nation, because you stay behind your borders, this is our nation. It couldn't have been accomplished peacefully if they hadn't made a call to more and better practice nationalism. You don't get to do that with the communists. You don't get to do that with the Islamists. You can't say to the Islamists, practice Islam better and therefore you'll give us our freedom. It's quite the opposite. The only other significant, peaceful, uh, righteous movement was that of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And once again, he was only able to do it, one, by appealing to, to, to the Judeo-Christian heritage, but also to the Constitution and to the nationalism. He asked us to be better nationalists. And, and so nationalism being the antidote to supremacism, this is the war that we're fighting in America since we came to power. After World War I, which left Europe just chaotic, all the forms of government there failed. And, and we had this rise of Russian supremacists, Marxists, and American nationalists. And for, uh, throughout the 20th century, that's the wars that we fought. The, the only wars we fought were World War II against the, the, the German socialists, the Nazis, the Cold War against the Russian socialists, the Vietnam War proxy wars, and, and, and the Korean War. Once the Soviet Union collapsed, the only other wars we've been involved in have been against the Islamist supremacists. America has never, in, in the 20th century, invaded for, this, for the sake of treasure, for the sake of glory. It's always been because we've been the only ones capable of stopping the greater spread of one or another supremacist movement. Now the supremacist movement is internal. Now the supremacist movement is the woke supremacist movement. So, given how, how obvious it is to me, that you go across the board, Nazis, uh, Soviet Union, Russia, uh, China today, uh, the Islamists, and the woke, and check every box. Why is it we have such a hard time recognizing just how truly evil this movement is? And there are a couple of reasons for it. One, when we think of these other supremacist movements, we, we tend to think of their monsters. And as monstrous as many of these Democrats are, whether it's lying about um, uh, uh, sexual assault to keep a man off of the Supreme Court, that's pretty monstrous. You know, whether, whether it's lying about the police and starting riots like they did in, in, in Ferguson and elsewhere, that's pretty monstrous. But nobody is going to say that Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and the others have risen to the level of monster that we associate with the others. <laughs> All right. Nobody with the microphone is going to say. <laughs> but, and it's the same thing with the atrocities. As atrocious 
as atrocious as the things that these Democrats have done, they don't rise yet to the level of atrocities we tend to associate with, with you know, whether it's gulags, whether it's uh, death camps, whether it's killing fields. They, they haven't. But you got to keep a couple of things in mind. One, Hitler didn't have death camps in 1931. Not because he wouldn't have, of course he would have, but because he couldn't yet have. The infrastructure for death camps is expensive. It takes a lot of manpower, it takes a lot, of, and he wasn't in power yet. He didn't have full control of the government yet. All right, Lenin didn't have gulags back in uh, 1916. Not because he wouldn't have, but because he couldn't yet have, because he hadn't come fully to power. So I am not greatly comforted by the fact that, that the Democrats haven't yet committed the kinds of atrocities we associate with their fellow supremacists, because I don't take a lot of comfort in the fact that people haven't yet done what they're not yet capable of doing. In fact, far more disconcerting to me is how similar what they are doing is to the Nazis before they came to power. The Marxists before they came to power, on the way to power. One of them is that the dehumanizing of dissent. That dissent has no moral backing. We have nothing, there's nothing we stand for. Nothing we say, not, su support the border, you're a racist. There's no, nothing other than we are bad people. And that's very disconcerting when you can't have a point of view that, that, that is different than theirs without being often subhuman, if not subhuman, then certainly deplorable. Right? Certainly deplorable. Another thing they have in common is every one of these supremacist movements had their quasi-independent military branch, military wing, to do the dirty work that would be unseemly for the leaders to be seen doing. Hitler had his brown shirts. Uh, Lenin had his black shirts. The woke have Antifa and, and, and BLM. So the similarities, and there are more than, and, and there are, more of them are in my book, which you're all going to buy, right? Oh, now you need a microphone. <laughs> I, 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 couldn't, I could not hear you before, but just now. <laughs> the, the other thing to keep in mind is that Mao's killing fields were 65 years ago. Hitler's death camps were liberated 75 years ago. Uh, the Russian Revolution was a hundred years ago. Right, well, well, that's really just the last generation or two. Technologically speaking, that was, that, that, that was the, 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 the Stone Age. Today, the technology is such that you don't need to, you can accomplish the same ends through very, very different, not so bloody, not so obvious means. The reason that Hitler put Jews into ghettos before moving on to the final solution, was in order to remove their voice from the community so that the narrative of, 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 of the administration, of the regime, could not be countered by the Jews' humanity. 
Well, now you don't have to do that because all you have to do is put us in Facebook jail. Right? All you have to do is put us, I, I am permanently banned from Twitter. They have removed this Jew's voice from the community. You know, they've removed Simone Gold's voice from the community so that their narratives cannot be countered by, by our humanity. You don't have to destroy, physically destroy the businesses of your enemies anymore like Kristallnacht. Because they can now just demonetize us, write a line of code, and accomplish the same end. And it is exactly the same end. Right? Hitler didn't dream of a world. He didn't imagine a, a world of, of death camps. He imagined the world after the death camps had accomplished their goals. And keep in mind that this is exactly what George Orwell was warning about, the, advent, the advance of technology and how it can then be used to accomplish. There were no death camps in, 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 19, in the book 1984. He didn't need them. They weren't needed. And this is exactly what, what Orwell warned about, and, and that's where we are today. The other reason that we have such a hard time recognizing is most of the people we know who enable the woke supremacists aren't themselves woke supremacists. It never is that way in these movements. Do you know that in 1944, the height of World War II, in 1944, 10%, only 10% of the German population were actual active activist members of the Nazi party. Only 10%. Only about 5 maybe 10% of the world's Muslims are actual active activist Islamicists, jihadis. Back in the last Democratic Party incarnation of a supremacist movement, back in, in, in the uh, Old South, only about five, maybe 10% of the Democrats were actual active activist members of the Ku Klux Klan. You don't need a whole bunch, you need actually five or 10% who are monstrous, who will stop at nothing. And, and we have that power structure now. 90% of the people do not agree that men can have babies. 90% right? of the people don't, 90% of the people who support the, the Democratic Party don't believe giving seven-year-olds puberty blockers is a good thing. But what happens is when they've taken over the institutions, and this is what they told us they were going to do, this whole thing didn't come out of nowhere, right? This is the culmination of something that began in the 1960s with the 60s radicals. And they made no bones about what their intentions were. And these were bad and evil people. These were people like William Ayers and, and Bernadine Dorn, the Weather Underground. Do you know that the very first meeting of the Weather Underground, they took time out to cheer Charles Manson? Yep, they took time out of their very first meeting to cheer Charles Manson, who had just committed the, 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 the murders. Um, why not? I mean, he, he accomplished, they, were, they, they loved blood. Um, Ayers incited people, I'm trying to think of his exact wording and I can't, but it's in the book. Um, he incited children to go home and murder their parents. They bombed, they bombed cities, they bombed, they, they were terrorists. And in fact, Bernadine Dorn, the wife of William Ayers, came out 
took to a bank of microphones and said, Hi, I'm Bernadine Dorn, and I'm going to read to you a declaration of war. They declared war, they committed war crimes, they committed acts of war, and they failed. And the reason they failed is because they couldn't get anybody from the grown-ups who had lived life to join them. Millions and millions and millions of people had fled what they were selling, the, 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 the socialism, the communism that they were selling, had fled Europe to come here. They weren't going to join with that. Millions of others went and fought Hitler and came back. There's a great story in, in, in the woke supremacy which you're all going to buy, right? <laughs> Muhammad Ali, the great, the great boxer, Muhammad Ali, went to Africa to train, and he spent a month training in Africa to, to spend money over there and get to know his ancestral lands. And, and, and when he came home, the, the media asked him, you know, what, Muhammad, what'd you think of Africa? What'd you think of, of, of the continent of your ancestors? And now remember, this was a black man. We're talking about in the 1970s, early 70s, I believe. But we're not just talking about a black man. We're talking about a black man from the then still Jim Crow South. We're not just talking about a black man from the then still Jim Crow South. We're talking about a black Muslim man. And they said to him, Muhammad, what'd you think of Africa? And he said, quote, Thank God my granddaddy got on that boat. Right? Even when they had legitimate issues, even when there were, were true people knew how great this nation was because they knew a lot about the rest of the world, which is why they are so intent on keeping these children ignorant. Keeping these children so in a bubble that they, that they know nothing. And the best way to know nothing is to be indiscriminate. You know, I think the book that first got me thinking in this way was one that was written in 1986 by a gentleman named Alan Bloom. And the book is called The Closing of the American Mind. And his point was that their minds were so open that no fact could get in there because everything was, was, was meaningless. If you're so open-minded that you don't know right from wrong, good and evil, uh, truth and lies, beautiful and ugly. And this is how we finally get back to God, because my next book is called Dumber Than the Very First Caveman. <laughs> and in it, I make the case that you literally have to be dumber than the first person who've ever lived to not believe in God. There is 10,000 years of observation, discovery, and experiment, and not once... Not once has something come from nothing, like the universe. Not once has life come from the insentient. Not once. There are no laws or constants of science. And so I believe that this new militant atheist movement is a political movement, not a scientific movement. And it's at the core of this movement about indiscriminateness. Because without God, you know, People will say to me, and, and I think I have a minute and third, did, and did they say, am I having taking questions afterwards? Is that, okay, that's fine. If you want to understand the perfect world that the good people are trying to, to create, think of John Lennon's Imagine. All right, imagine there's no religion, imagine there's no God, imagine there's no heaven. And, 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 and what he promises is that this will be a world of such perfect peace because there'll be nothing to kill or die for. The thing he left out is that there'd be nothing to live for. 
And that's what's happening to our children today. Is, is, and that's why they're committing suicide. And that's why they're killing each other. And, and that's why they're, they're carving up their bodies. Because in, indiscriminateness is, is the opposite of humanity. It's our job to discriminate between right and wrong. And you can't do that. People would say to me, well, if your God exists, why is there evil? Because good and evil is one thing. It's the parameters between which everything else falls. Truth and lies. Beauty and ugliness. Uh, justice and injustice. All of the above. And it's our job to, to side with the good. And in order to side with the good, you've got to know what good is. And in order to know what good is, you have to be willing to and able to discriminate. The left is incapable of, of that human grown-up thing, which is why the original book is called The Kindergarten of Eden. And I argue that they are morally and intellectually stunted at the level of the five-year-old child. Because what are the rules of, of kindergarten? Don't hit anyone. No, you got to hit the bad guys. Right? Everyone must be invited to your party. No, you don't invite child molesters to the party. Okay, so I wish I had a bang-up ending except to say you're all going to buy my book, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is Debbie Georgiatis on America Can We Talk. Thank you so very much for tuning in today and every day, Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time to America Can We Talk. I'll be back live in studio on Tuesday, November 1st. Until then... Enjoy this week of presentations of all the speakers made at the third annual Women for Freedom Summit here in Dallas. Thank you for listening to America Can We Talk, where I always talk truth about America because America matters. And I will talk to you very soon. America Can We Talk? truth about America. Can you